We are <clears throat> essentially continuing on from last week's lesson, and so um, the slide on the screen is the, the same purpose and application um, points that were there last week, <clears throat> and since they remain unchanged, um, if you were here last week, I will not reiterate them, and if you haven't, they're on the screen. So I'll leave that there um, briefly um, while I offer an apology. <clears throat> How many of you have ever played the game Mad Libs? <clears throat> Maybe half. If you haven't played it, who knows? If, if you didn't raise your hand but you know what the game is, uh, raise your hand this time. So, Okay, so Mad Libs. <clears throat> Basically in Mad Libs, there's a short story um, with, um, <clears throat> with blanks, within the storyline, wherein the reader prompts the other players by asking for certain types of words, like an adjective or an adverb, um, verbs, nouns, whatever. Um, and then the other players have no context to the story, so they merely supply words at random according to the type of word that's requested. Of course, the fun of the game lies in the reader telling the story um, with all the strange words filled in the spaces, and I always got a good chuckle uh, playing that game. So that being said, um, I had done a significant amount of research for my lesson last week, and I was pretty confident um, that I knew the material well, which I do. Um, however, um, I often suffer from um, anomic aphasia, which means that it's difficult for me to find the words when I need them. <clears throat> they are usually not even complicated words. They're just regular old words. But while I'm standing up here, they completely escape me. Um, I have no fear of public speaking. My, my greatest fear is that I'm going to look out there and forget your name. Pe <laughs> yeah, the people that I know. So that's the worst. <clears throat> when I am speaking with family and friends and I'm trying to explain something and I can't find the words, sometimes... I'll, I'll pause to try and give the description, but sometimes I'm flustered enough that I can't even find the words to describe the thing that you put on when you're cold, you know what I mean? So, so um, that being said, uh, it is difficult for me sometimes to remember details and to organize my thoughts, and then it starts to sound like I'm rambling. And that's how I felt last week turned out. So although I knew the material well enough, I thought that um, as I walked into the, the time for the lesson, I thought that um, there would be benefits to being more spontaneous in the discussion uh, because of the atmosphere for a casual Wednesday night environment. Um, but uh, what I thought I could ad-lib turned into mad-lib. <laughs> so for that, I apologize. Um, so the lesson learned is I spent more time this week organizing my thoughts. It was part two of the lesson. And uh, what I've structured is what I hope will be a blessing and enjoyment to you because I'm purely fascinated with these studies, which is why I always bring them to you. And then I disappoint myself when I get up here and I can't communicate it in such a thrilling and exciting way. So... I forgot my Bible. 
but there's one here. So turn with me to um, Genesis 22. It's the same Bible, but I'll be honest, uh, when I'm teaching and preaching, I bring a large print one now, (laughs) Uh, even with bifocals and or uh, progressives, which these are. So Genesis 22, uh, verses 1 through 19, so that we refamiliarize ourselves with what, what we're talking about. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. And thus ends the reading of God's word. The setting of Genesis 22 is important. And so I wanted to take a moment for us to consider the setting and how it points forward to Jesus Christ. This testing of Abraham, or also called the sacrifice of Isaac, will be on a mountain in the land of Moriah that God will show to Abraham. And apart from this chapter in verse 2, the mountain in Moriah is named only once, and it is called Mount Moriah in 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1, where Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. 
Although it's not named as such in 2 Samuel 24, 16 through 25, that passage does mention the same place where Yahweh visited David after that unlawful census, where David would purchase this particular threshing floor, build an altar, and offer burnt offerings and peace offerings in order to remove the plague of discipline from the Israelites. In these graphics, then, I wanted to show you Mount Moriah and Jerusalem, where the temple was built, in comparison to the surrounding territory and the hill upon which um, the scholars believe Jesus was crucified, which would be in fulfillment of Genesis 22.14, since we're talking Genesis 22. So that's the hill, and that's the same place. So you can see why I use two different maps, because this one shows the top topography. topography, And... and uh, if you can read maps like this, it is kind of fascinating because the numbers help, the, the little circles at the top indicate that it's a hill, and then the numbers indicate um, heights and things like that. But it's the same thing uh, drawn differently, so there's pros and cons to both. Technically, all of these high points represent mountains of Moriah, so all of them in that, that region. Most scholars believe that the site now called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre contains the locations where Jesus was crucified on Golgotha and also buried in a tomb only a few meters away. This location meets the requirements of the description of Golgotha, the place of the skull, being outside of the city limits of its day, which you can see by the adjacent city walls. So that's the hill, which we believe is Golgotha. Um, it is now the current location of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And in both maps, you can see the old city walls. Uh, so that would have been outside the city. So um, that's going to be important as we, we, we move forward. Um, so again, last week we were tying chapter 22 of Genesis to John 8.56. And we were tying Jesus' statement in the New Testament pointing back to Abraham as fulfilled in Genesis 22. And I want to demonstrate then the correlation to what Abraham saw that prefigures Christ. In the types throughout Genesis 22, Abraham saw the day of Christ. That's my argument. Abraham saw the day of redemption, the willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the atonement lamb, the far greater sacrifice that would permanently atone for man's sin by the one and only beloved son who would become the resurrected one and our resurrection hope, and he saw all of this through his son, Isaac. So how do we get there? Consider this chart of comparison, noting how all of the supporting texts for Isaac as a type of Christ come from Genesis 22, except for the first. And the first one is quite miraculous if one speculates what must have taken place for God to give Sarah a child in her given condition. So we see the miraculous birth as a type of foreshadowing as well. And i got to tell you, I've been racking my brain all week trying to think about all the implications of what that miracle must have looked like for a menopausal woman to get pregnant. And so it's miraculous and it's amazing. So look closely, though, at the following parallels of chapter 22 to the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Genesis 22 presents the only son, sacrificed on one of the mountains of Moriah. 
He was figuratively dead for three days and likewise figuratively resurrected as Hebrews eleven seventeen interprets or explicitly states. Isaac was accompanied uh, to his death by two servants and was compelled to carry his own sacrificial wood upon his back. When the time for the sacrifice came, Isaac willingly submitted to the will of his father. And because of the obedience of Abraham and Isaac, they would become a blessing to the nations. Furthermore, apart from these very strong comparisons, I think Jesus purposefully chose the words, saw in John 8, to point back to the theme of Genesis 22 that I'm calling, Abraham sees that Yahweh sees. So, I'm saying that the the theme of Genesis 22 is Abraham sees that Yahweh sees. And I'm telling you, in my opinion, Jesus very specifically chose the word saw. And one of the things we do sometimes in exegesis when you're considering grammar and things uh, is considering the words that aren't used as you're considering the words that are used and what some of the implications can be. So, first thing, consider the words that Jesus could have used to convey the same thought if sight was truly irrelevant. Here here are just a couple suggestions that I I came up with on the fly, though there are likely endless possibilities. And and the point of my examples is I'm taking the word sight out out of the list. For example, Jesus could have said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that my day would come, and he had faith and was glad. He could have said, your father Abraham rejoiced that his seed would result in the coming Messiah. And he knew that my day was the ultimate fulfillment and was glad. Again, I think the words of Jesus were intended to point back to the theme of Genesis 22 and not some other vision or experience that Abraham had. And and that that previous chart is to demonstrate all those parallels that are pointing forward to Christ. And that's why I'm saying that I think um, that, he, that Jesus was pointing back to Genesis 22. And I think the word saw was important because we're going to see how it relates in Genesis 22. So how do I justify the theme of Genesis 22? Abraham sees that Yahweh sees. Well, there are nine repeated interjections and verbs throughout this pericope that all relate to seeing in one fashion or another. And I have them listed here with the, re- with the references and a little context so that you can get the overall impression. Some of the words in English, though, don't help to understand the subtlety of what is being conveyed, um, because you might look up there and you're saying, what does here I am have to do with seeing? What does providence have to do with seeing? And so I created another chart. (laughs) Now, I can appreciate this is mildly complicated, Enjoy it with me. So I have arrows on the left to try to show the connection between the words which have the same root. And I color-coded it, even though, if you don't know, I'm colorblind too. And so half the time I can't tell if the colors match. But I'm convinced that these match, and the arrows are intended to show you which words are connected by the same root. Okay, so I have the column with the verse number so that you can know where it's coming from. The brief word or phrase 
from our New King James translation. I then listed the transliterated Hebrew alongside its literal translation. And in a way, you can ignore that column, except that you'll, I mean, it's transliteration, so it's English letters. So in theory, you can pronounce it and, and at least see the similarities of what's going on. Okay, so that being said, then the fourth column is uh, the literal translation. Now, the simplest use of C can be realized in verses 4, 8, 13, and 14 with their variations of the root ra'ah, which means to see. The red circle on the screen is the lexical form in parentheses right there. So that's ra'ah, transliterated. So you have a general idea of what I'm speaking to. Um, And the Y prefix before the root in the written word, so uh, this right there, Hebrew can get really complicated because they say this is the word and then they throw in all kinds of prefixes and suffixes and they drop letters. But trust me when I tell you that the R there um, is actually part of Ra'ah. Um, and you can, you can, that's actually a letter symbol as well. And so uh, these blue circles show uh, the, the word Ra'ah in, in the word itself. And the Y that you see is the prefix denoting that it's the masculine third-person pronoun, he. So each of those that are circled represent a variant of he sees, or he saw, or he will see, or he'll see to it. It will be seen to. The cases in verses 1, 7, and 11 are all interjections, and they're not verbs as they appear to be in English, where it says, here I am. Um, The literal meaning is, behold, interjection, right? Behold, look. Um, but it is also frequently used appropriately in this context as here I am, when a character makes his presence known to another, essentially saying, look, see, I'm right here. So that's where the look is associated with an interjection like this. So it's not mistranslated in any way. It's just the way they say here I am. But they use a seeing word, right? Look at, look at me, I'm right here. So perhaps... Like me, you grew up singing the song Jehovah Jireh. Anyone? Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me, for me, for me. Okay, so that title comes from the designation that's used here, and uh, specifically in verse 14, but it's alluded to in verse 8 as well. So I use the term Yahweh Yireh because it's the more appropriate pronunciation, and so that's what you'll hear me say. So, what do we mean then that God provides? What does the verb provide mean? And so here are two of the common definitions associated with the English word provide from the Oxford Languages Dictionary. And I'm sure that these definitions suit exactly what you presume the word provide means. And so generally speaking, in context, um, they make sense. However... Here's where I find, this is what I find fascinating about this title. Yire, as I indicated, does not come from the word supply, of which we normally understand the word provide to mean, but rather it is from the verb to see, as I illustrated above. It is normally used in the Old Testament with a sense of seeing or looking because of what is seen with the eyes, or understanding and discovering because of what is seen with the eyes of the mind, 
so to speak. So that, that's how it's uh, generally used. Yahweh Yireh is in fact uh, literally translated Yahweh, he will see. From this, however, we can also understand that the Lord who sees provides, or even the idi- idiomatic phrase, the Lord will see to it. Or even the Lord who sees will see to it. What is additionally interesting is how we get from the verb to see to the word provide. Who remembers when video games became popular in the 1970s? Yeah, I think all the young kids are gone. Most of the young kids are gone. So most of the people here should, should remember. Well, there's a few young old guys in the back. Um, or what about in the 70s and 80s when the VHS or the VCR became popular? Um, so who remembers what VCR or VHS stand for? Yeah, so video cassette recorder or, I had to look this one up, video home system, VHS, JV, JVC, that, that was their kind of brand name, v, uh, their little acronym. Uh, okay, so does anyone here then know from where we get the word video? I told you, it's fascinating. I might just... <laughs> I'm in a hurry to get through everything, or I might just pause for effect. Pause for effect. Okay. In 1935, the word video became popular as the visual equivalent of the word audio. And the word is of Latin origin, video, from the verb, I see. Likewise, the source of the explanation of the word provide is from the Latin etymology of providere, from pro, meaning ahead, plus videre, meaning to see, or provideo, I foresee, I act with foresight, I provide, or I see too, as in I see to your needs, means that I provide for you, I have supplied certain necessities. And this is also where we get the term for providence. The Lord acts with foresight and foreknowledge. The Lord sees and he sees to it. He sees and knows and takes action to care for us and to provide or to supply for our needs. We should see and acknowledge the hand of providence all around us. The biblical use of foreknowledge and providence is not merely prescient, though. We're not merely talking prescient knowledge, as in God was reacting to what he knew would happen. But in his providence, he determines ahead of time the plan and actions that he will bring to fruition. And in several passages, the biblical authors speak to what God foreordained before the foundation of the world, though we don't have time to consider all of them tonight. I do have a short list if you want to see it later. So, now that I got through the meat of the text and the theme, Abraham sees that Yahweh sees, I want to pause to see if there are any questions, comments, concerns. Yeah, Chris. Remember that chart where you're comparing Isaac and Jesus? Yeah. That was really cool. Um, one of the, the former said Isaac was sacrificed. Would that be figuratively as well? Yeah, yeah, correct. Okay. The, the sacrifice and the resurrection are both figurative. Okay. So I believe then that we have time to hit a few more areas of interest and internal repetition through this pericope. Um, So, 
Yeah, so... Yeah, so pericope is, a, um, in essence, another word for passage or text. or So it has to do with a particular selection of reading that sometimes, like, we're not looking at the chapter of Genesis 22 because we're looking at a portion of it. And then sometimes, I mean, obviously pericope is a obscure word, but so can passage or text be. But we're, talking, we're all talking about Genesis 1, uh, 22, 1 through 19. And so... Um, that being said, if I can only cover one topic in the remaining time, the most important one that I believe w- would be to help explain the strange language of verse 17 and 18, um, and also the re-expression of the Abrahamic covenant. So the, uh, our English text reads, Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply. So have, have, have you read that? This week and last week or previously, um, as you've heard it, and say, what in the world is blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you? Well, what we have here are two tautological infinitives, which means that they're redundant or um, they're appearing to demonstrate a needless repetition. Um, And these mark the speaker's strength of assertion. So it could easily be translated as, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you, because he's saying it definitively. This redundant verb usage is for emphasis, and it's used to demonstrate the certainty of God's promise. And to throw some other strange words at you, these verbs also demonstrate factative use, which, um, which is having a sense of causing a result, or to make something become something. So the act of God's blessing and multiplying result in Abraham's state of being blessed and multiplied. So we've got a lot going on there, and that, that's what that means. So all that being said, and actually I meant to look up what the ESV, maybe the LEB say, but a simple understanding would be simply, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Um, As the text continues, we also see, um, in addition to the original blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the text says, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. So the text on the left of the screen is from the original proclamation um, of the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 12 that would be repeated and clarified throughout several subsequent chapters thing in like 15, 17, maybe 2021, 20, and here in 22. The phrase speaking to the descendants being multiplied as the stars in the heaven is a rephrasing of an earlier addendum, so not in Genesis 12, but it is added in Genesis 15, where um, the text says, And behold, the word of the Lord uh, came to Abraham, saying, This one, Ishmael, shall be your heir, but shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then the Lord brought Abraham outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And the Lord said to Abraham, So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord accounted it to him as righteousness. 
However, uh, in verse 17, Yahweh further expands now in this chapter the illustration including even the numbering of the sands on the seashore. And then this addition would be repeated later in Genesis 32.12 by Jacob now in a prayer asking for deliverance based on the promise so that Jacob and his wife and his children wouldn't be killed by Esau. And so in his fear of meeting Esau again as he's returning to to Canaan, um, he says, God, remember when you said you were going to multiply us? That can't happen if I'm dead. That's basically what his prayer was. Um, Additionally, the promise, your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies, is also new to the Abrahamic blessing, um, but will later be reinforced in the blessing of Rebekah, so Isaac's wife. Uh, Genesis 24, 60, the text tells us, And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands, of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. And then the final phrase, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It's not new to the Abrahamic covenant. However, as we've demonstrated, this passage points to fulfillment in Christ. This is a promise that is ultimately satisfied in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and noted so by um, the Apostle John in 1 John 2.2. 2. He says, He, being Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So now, um, it's not just a blessing for Abraham and his family, or Abraham and his descendants, or Jews, or the Israelite nation, but the whole world. Um, are there any questions at this point? All right. I know I went over last time. I'm not going to let you early out early on account of that, but I am going to use up every minute I got. But I'm almost done also. Um, there are two noteworthy internal rep- uh, repetition, uh, repetitions that come from Genesis 22.2 that will be repeated later. Um, the first is, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. So the first is, your son, your only son, and this is repeated in verses 12 and 16, and I believe that the redundancy is both to emphasize the significance of Abraham's sacrifice in relation to his beloved son, as well as to foreshadow the language of the Old Testament and the New Testament, which all point forward to the one and only son, Jesus Christ. And then the second is the word take. It's repeated in Genesis 22.6 in the form of Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac and he took the fire in his hand. Took is repeated twice here in this line um, with the original command to take Isaac um, in the background. Um, so it's a subtle way that the author is demonstrating that Abraham is, in fact, obeying God's command. So in verse 1, 2, verse 2, I think, uh, God says, take Isaac, your son. And then this verse says, he took his son, and he took the stuff for the, the sacrifice. And then the final phrase um, of verse 6, and the two of them went together, is a great transition to the internal repetition of verse 5. Um, looking at the statement of, we will come back to you. So this statement is carried into verse 6 as a modified progression of the journey with this intended return. So Abraham starts off telling the young men, stay here, 
the boy and I are going to go worship, and then we're going to return to you. And then this kind of, I almost called it a micro-theme, but this repetition is, is carried through first in verse 6, as then the two of them went together. Then that's repeated verbatim in verse 8, so the two of them went together. And then it's brought to completion in verse 19, where the text then says, so Abraham returned to the young men, and they went together. So I find that pretty interesting. Okay, so that's pretty much the meat of it. Now it is 8.01. I put this slide at the end, and I, because I know you pay attention to details, I changed the circle bullets to checks. Because I would like to think, in my opinion, we have completed the mission to prove those points. And if I haven't, you can ask me a question or make a comment now, or we can talk after. Okay. Since Andrew's still talking, there was, I think there's one verse that I wanted to... It has to do with Genesis 15. Can I take one more minute? Sure. So in Genesis 15, 4 through 6, I'd read it earlier. God told... Abraham, this one Ishmael shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And so as, as I was reading that as a proof text for this, I thought about that. So is Isaac not part of Abraham's own body? Was Abraham not the father of Ishmael? And that fascinated me. And so... I'm going to tell you that I think that it correlates with Genesis uh, 2.24, where God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Ishmael was certainly Abraham's son, but not the descendant of Abraham and Sarah, and that's what God had promised. And so he said, it needs to be from your body, and by that he meant you and your wife, Sarah. Pretty interesting, I think. I'll close this in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we're grateful for um, this time of study. I do pray that it it was a blessing. And um, we are grateful that your word uh, does not return void. We're grateful that it always is proven true and factual. And we're grateful that it happened in in time and space and that we can look back um, and and appreciate it. And I pray that it would encourage us to follow hard after you. trusting in Jesus Christ, our Savior, um, and resting that in, the, in the fact that you are true to your promises. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.